Hello, everybody. I'm Derek Arden and welcome to Monday Night Live. Got a really exciting Monday Night Live tonight. I've got John Vine uh, on to talk to us about his views on the security at the uh, Queen's funeral. John was involved in all sorts of security when he was the uh, chief constable in Tayside Police. And after that, reported to the prime minister as chief inspector of Borders. John, welcome to Monday Night Live again. It's a great pleasure to have you with us. And pleasure to be here. Thank you. And I'm going to fire a few questions at you, John. I went up to London at about one o'clock on the day the uh, coffin was being moved to Westminster Hall, and I couldn't get anywhere near. Um, a I couldn't get past a police cordon and about uh, two miles of eight foot green barriers which um upset me a bit really i couldn't get anywhere near anything um there was this giant cordon there was security everywhere and i was wondering at the time how did that get coordinated um there were armed forces everywhere i was told there was twelve thousand policemen but you told me that was wrong can you tell us a bit about it from your experience okay well let, let me just talk about it because it's i mean it was a remarkable event and uh you know, it's broadcast, all these events that's broadcast worldwide. So, you know, I think a lot of people wondered about how it came about and how it was coordinated. So I think it was the, it's the second episode of The Crown. Um, there's an operation um, around the death of King George VI. Uh, can, I, can anybody remember what it was called? Because all these operations have a name. Well, it was called Operation Hyde Park Corner. And it had been planned for many, many years before the King's death. And this operation was codenamed Operation London Bridge. And it had been planned for six years prior to the Queen's demise, sad demise. And um, it was coordinated by an assistant commissioner in the Metropolitan Police called Lucy Dorsey. Now, she has actually since become the chief constable of British Transport Police. And in effect, she was the national coordinator for all the policing at the events. And that incorporated the policing that the Met Police, of course, the London Police had to deliver, but also the police forces in Scotland, because, of course, the Queen passed away while she was at Balmoral in Scotland, and in Sandringham in Norfolk, where, of course, she has another home. And it also incorporated the police in Thames Valley Police in the UK, which covers Windsor, the castle of Windsor. And so a big operation um, involving directly over the 10 days, I believe, over 5,000 officers directly involved in the ceremonial and keeping people like you at bay, Derek. You know, because obviously a judgment has to be made about whether they allow people like you anywhere near. <laughs> and clearly, I mean, the, a balance has to be struck between obviously providing proper security and keeping... Uh, and having a security assessment about how close the public should be able to get to all the ceremonial, and also uh, trying to make sure it doesn't look as though it's a prison camp. And some physical barriers have to be erected in certain places just simply to keep people at bay. But also, I think what the police tried to do was to allow the public as close as they, as they could reasonably you know, expect them to be to pay their respects. And I don't want to hark back to the event at Glen Eagles. That was a long time ago. But I had that dilemma right at the beginning of the G8 at Glen Eagles because 
Politicians like to have events in open places. And that was a golf course with no, um, no security fence around it. And it was important that we did put some security around it. And I remember having a debate with, well, Tony Blair's office about the type of fencing. We wanted to put up 10 foot high security fencing, but quite rightly, um, they didn't want that. They wanted it to look a little softer. So sometimes you have to make compromises around the, you know, the sort of um, the hard perimeter around any venue in order to try and get that balance right between providing security and making sure that, you know, the public can pay their respects. And uh, that was really the, probably the most difficult part of this particular event, I would have thought. You know, so worldwide, we've got worldwide TV coverage, we're on the ground. I mean, I went to Parliament Square as well, and there were many, many people there who wanted to pay their respects, you know, and be near the venues where, you know, the procession would be. And so, you know, that was the real challenge. The other challenge of policing is that although it's, it's taken six years to plan this event, in principle, it is in effect what we would call a no-notice event. Because of course, none of us knew that the Queen would pass away at that particular time in that particular place. And so you, the police will have had um, a plan prepared, which incorporates aspects of the funeral, which of course we now know the Queen herself was active, you know, in planning. You know, a lot of the ceremonial was, was approved by her many, many years ago. Um, but at the same time, obviously, um, the fact that she passed away in Scotland and it involved a lot of, it must have involved a lot of liaison with the Scottish Police Service, who, of course, are not accountable to the Home Office and the English Parliament, the Scottish Police Service are accountable to the Scottish Government. And so that would in itself have been a complication. The, you know, the, the Scottish Government and Scottish Ministers and the Chief Constable of the Scottish uh, Police Service would have had to have been brought in very quickly into the arrangements. And that wouldn't have necessarily been something that was anticipated. And so there you've got the, you know, the... Um, uh, uh, the, the Queen's coffin being transported all the way down from Balmoral. Decisions made about how that would occur. You know, it, it was transported by vehicle. And then, um, you know, from Scotland, lying in, lying in state basically in Scotland, and then being transported by air to, to London. And so a lot of, there'll have been a lot of hasty fine tuning of the basic plan because it's a no notice event. And uh, officers would have been brought in at very last minute to try and accommodate those nuances, and particularly the Scottish uh, aspect. In effect, the number of officers that were um, deployed at this event constituted, or would have constituted over the 10 days, of the fifth largest police force in England and Wales. So five to 6,000 officers comprises, in practical terms, about the fifth largest police force. So you've got the Met, and then you've got large forces like Greater Manchester and West Midlands. You've also got Police Scotland now. But putting together a force of, that, uh, of those numbers takes an awful lot of coordination. And in Britain, we have, and I know our American friends are used to lots of local police forces of various different sizes. Of course, in Britain, we have 43 
police forces. But in terms of the operation, not only would all those police forces that have contributed specialist officers to this event, and I'll go into the specialisms in a minute, but it also incorporated officers from British Overseas Territories, uh, Anguilla, Montserrat, Bermuda, Cayman Islands, Gibraltar, Cyprus, the Cyprus sovereign bases, British Virgin Islands, the Falkland Islands, the Channel Islands, and the Isle of Man. So there were an awful lot of, uh, and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, of course, had a ceremonial role in the whole event. So um, there were a lot of officers brought in for the ceremonial, not just from across the UK, but across the world. And um, that takes a lot of coordination. So there's a national coordination centre in the UK. And so if you're the chief constable, say if you're the commissioner of the Met and you know that the majority of this is going to be on your patch, you will go to the national coordinating centre and you'll ask for extra staff with particular skills. And that small team will reach out to all the other forces in the UK and bring those skilled officers in. So for a big security operation, you need lots of search officers, search trained officers who can lift manhole covers, you know, and look at drains and all the rest of it and are trained to do that role. You need lots of dog handlers that have got dogs trained in sniffing out explosives or currency or a whole way or drugs. And you won't get all that you need from one particular force, from the host force. So you need to reach out to other forces to get those specialisms in. And, uh, and in addition, then you need all the sort of logistics that go to support a big operation. I'm going to stop there and let you ask some questions, because what I want to do is not drone on. I want this to be a discussion. So I'll stop there and let you either ask a question or let some of our guests ask questions. John, you're not droning on at all. It's fascinating. You're doing a fantastic job. So thanks for that. If you could put the questions in the chat box, it would be simpler, short, sharp, specific yeah. questions. I'll ask the first one, John. The first one is the Queen died at 10 past three. Of course, we didn't know that uh, until a death certificate was uh, was released yesterday or the day before. Yeah. Um, yeah. At which point would the national coordinator know that it was action plans to go for it. I think it was announced at 6.30 she'd passed away, but I guess people knew that before. Yeah, I would imagine the government would know, you know, the time of death and, uh, you know, they would immediately inform the um, uh, the chief constable in charge of Operation London Bridge and they would uh, get the plans out, uh, put together an incident room, bring the people in uh, with the planning skills and off they would go and, uh, you know, try and allocate resources to the roles that would be identified in the planning. And then they would have to look at the plan and see what extras they needed. So I've already mentioned the Scottish dimension. Had she, you know, passed away in Buckingham Palace in central London, it wouldn't have involved a great deal um, from Police Scotland, except they would have contributed to some of the skills needed you know, around the funeral. Uh, but it wouldn't have required all the logistics in Scotland in, this, in the way that it did. And so uh, the fine-tuning of the plan would have been started almost immediately. And, you know, it would have, they would have been working round the clock to get this sorted, really, in the timescale involved. 
I mean, the good thing about policing is that sometimes police officers don't think too too much before they act. That's a bit of a that's a bit of a weakness. But when they do act, you know, they get things done and they stay with it until it's done. So it's a very action orientated culture. What's really important is that there's there's a bit of thinking goes in before they start acting. So in this particular case, there'll have been a very detailed plan, um, uh, which encompasses all the protocols. And one of the, one of the one of the big issues, and I found this uh, Glen Eagles, when uh, I mean one of the aspects of this operation, of course, is that you have to accommodate all the world leaders who want to come to the actual state funeral. And uh, Glen Eagles, although it was the G8, we had the Prime Minister inviting all the African heads of state and all the BRIC economy heads of state as well. You know, the, you know, the heads of uh, India, Brazil, etc., uh, South Africa, the emerging um, uh, sort of uh, um, economies. Sure. And all of them have their own um, demands around protocol, you know, where they stay, um, where their planes are going to be parked on the tarmac at the airport, because they all they never want their plane to be blocked in. They always want you know the ability to leave whenever they want, and so you need somewhere with plenty of tarmac, wow. you know, to park them all. There, there are lots of things that you would never think are going to be really important, and handling all that is a job in itself. So, for example, with the uh, the funeral. They asked heads of state to share seats on buses. But of course, the American president, you know, from probably from a security point of view, wanted, you know, to use the car. Um, and of course, the car got stuck in traffic, I believe, and he ended up, you know, not in the, I think, I don't know, it was about 14 rows back in the He was church. on the 14th row, yeah. 14th yeah. row behind the, um, um, the Prime Minister of Poland, I think. <laughs> I think that was because he, I don't think I think he got stuck in traffic and it didn't arrive quite on on the time he expected. Uh, okay. That's what I read. Whether that's the case or not, I don't know. John, the question so, the questions are pouring yeah. in. So um, yes, they are right. <laughs> so I'm I'm going okay. to ask. Shall I keep? Shall, shall I shall I start asking them and we'll keep? Yes, yeah, you start asking some. Let me see. Keep them to about two minutes, and I'll take them in order. Yeah. So David Skinner asks, what process okay. do you follow? To, to decide how much risk you're going to accept and who makes that call. Right. Okay, well, I've already talked about red team reviewing in relation to G8, and I know Tim's very interested in this. Uh, and in the, in the, uh, in the years uh, that you have to actually plan an, event, plan an event, I think what you try and do is you try and address risk by getting some expertise around the table and challenging some of your preconceptions about how you do this. That's in the long term. In the short term, at the end of the day, uh, there's no substitute for the officer in overall command, you know, getting the best people, it was her, it was a, it was a woman in this case, Lucy Dorsey, uh, she would get the best people she could to advise her. But at the end of the day, she has to make the decision. She has to make the decision about how much risk uh, is taken. It's as simple as that. There's no, there's no easy way of addressing that. Okay, and uh, the second question from David is, if he was a criminal, should he plan to commit uh, crimes during one of those events? Well, that's a very good question. John, this is being recorded, so be careful. While, <laughs> while all these events are going on, I think 
if you're a chief police officer in whose area all this is happening, what you have to remember is that ordinary crime is happening at the same time, and the public who pay your wages expect you still to deliver a decent police service. And so one of the challenges for policing is you have to allocate resources, obviously, to make sure that you've got a safe and secure event and that there's going to be no disruption, you know, and somebody jumping over the barrier and um, doing something stupid in front of the world's media. But at the same time, you've still got to provide sufficient police officers to make sure that the streets of London and elsewhere are safe. And that's why very often officers are drafted in for the ceremonial. So I was watching it on television. I noticed there were Welsh officers, for example, lining the uh, the route of the, the queue to go and see the Queen's coffin that was lying in state in Westminster Hall because they had, you know, Welsh, you know, the Welsh word for police on their on their backs. And so presumably that would release a lot of the metropolitan police officers to still do the day job. You know, because the criminals don't stop. You know, I'm sure a lot of them are very sorry that the uh, Majesty's passed away, but I don't think it would, generally speaking, stop them, you know, uh, carrying on their core business. I think there were riots going on in Leicester because of a cricket match between India and Pakistan at the same time. Yeah, there was some disorder in Leicester. I'm not quite sure the reason why, but of course, you know, the police in Leicester would be dealing with that. If they couldn't cope with that, they would call in mutual aid from their surrounding forces. But of course, some of those officers might have been earmarked to actually support the Mets with the, the state funeral. And so all this is coordinated, as I said, um, at the centre. And what happens, quite simply, because each force is a separate business with a separate budget, you know, the officers who are brought in uh, to a particular force um, then have to be paid for at a later date, you know, an invoice goes back at some stage, you know, to the, uh, the force that's requested them, uh, asking for the money for the time that they spent, yeah. you know, performing that support. Give us the money. So it's a fairly straightforward business proposition at the end of the day. Sure. Uh, John, you probably don't know the answer to this question, but Carl, Carl Walsh from California asked, were there any specific threats that we know about? I guess we I, I'm not aware that there were, but I would imagine, you know, the sort of, first of all, you would start with the terrorist threats. You know, if you've got all the world's heads of state at a state funeral in London, you've got um, a very significant potential terrorist threat. And uh, I'm sure that the, the security agencies in the UK would be liaising with their foreign counterparts in the US and in other countries in respect of each head of state that's attending. And an assessment would be made to see whether there was a particular head of, straight, uh, head of state that was um, uh, vulnerable uh, to attack. And in general, an assessment will be made of the likely terrorist threat. And there would be counter-terrorism officers um, at the, uh, and I know there were specialist counter-terrorism officers or CTSFOs, as we call them, um, deployed to try and counter that at this particular event. And there will be specialist firearms officers and diplomatic protection officers who will be looking after individual heads of state where there was an assessment made of, you know, of risk to that individual. 
And those officers would stick with their principle throughout this event. I'm going to skip around with the questions a bit because there's a question about Joe Biden uh, and America as well. So let's go go there um, first. So Andrew asks, our American friends are especially conscious about security measures, including welding shut all manhole covers after they've been checked. Given that uh, President Biden was here, uh, would US security have asked for similar measures to that? Um, and let's go. Yeah, my experience, of, my experience of dealing with uh, American, the, the American security around the president, certainly at Glen Eagles, was that, you know, it was a pretty high standard. They bring a lot of their own security people as well. And so there's usually, you know, the, uh, the Air Force One with the president in and his closest advisors, but they'll bring other aircraft, you know, with, um, with many, many other support staff, which includes security. Uh, and uh, it's a very high standard. So usually if you satisfy the standard for the Americans, you've usually covered most of the, the requests for other world leaders as well. Okay, and would they interview the chief constable or whatever to make no. sure security was okay? Is there no, any- no, but they would look at they would they would look at the plans, and the commission of the Met has uh, responsibility for allowing, um, you know, other security operatives to, you know, get very very close to you know the principal and to get close to to the action. So um, at the end of the day. Um, these organizations don't just come together um, on, on a one-off occasion. They talk to each other on a regular basis. And in the um, across um, the English-speaking world, particularly, there are, there's something called the Five Eyes Group. And so law enforcement agencies from America, the UK, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and is that all? UK, America. Canada, Australia, New Zealand, they meet on a regular basis to discuss security issues. And these people will get to know each other. And so that when something happens, they will be able to, they're probably people who've spoken either on calls like this, conference calls like this, or who've met each other and have built up a level of trust, you know, between themselves and an understanding of what each of their agencies would want, you know, to put in place uh, for an event such as this. Okay, just a little bit more on our American friends. Um, Nigel would like you to talk, if you can, about the financials of accommodating Air Force One at Stansted. (laughs) And another question is, was Joe Biden put in the 14th row for security measures or because Big Bertha or whatever his, uh, his bus that comes on Air Force Two is called, I know it's called something like that, um, was caught up in traffic because he didn't get on the uh, coaches. Well, like I, I, don't know, I don't know the inside track on that. I, know, I did see something in the, in the UK media that, uh, that um, his, um, his limousine got uh, stuck outside pret in Oxford Street at one point. I think it was a picture. <laughs> because of... Of course, it's a, it's a bit bigger than most of the vehicles we have on UK roads for a start. Yeah, Tim's um, told us it's called the Beast. Maybe he wants a coffee or a sandwich at Pratamonte. So I don't know about that, but I think the um, in terms of the uh, uh, the financials, um, 
I remember at Glen Eagles, originally, the whole, uh, 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 the airport that was going to be used was the nearest large international airport. It was, a, it was Edinburgh. But that changed halfway through the planning. It had to be Prestwick. And Prestwick is a bit, is an old wartime airbase, a bit like Stansted. I think Stansted and Prestwick have advantages of having lots of tarmac and uh, generally a bit, uh, a bit more room. And so, um, uh, you need to choose a, uh, an airbase which has got the room to accommodate all the planes and to allow you know, people to come and go reasonably easily without disrupting the normal commercial traffic. And so that's probably why they chose Stansted. I've no idea what the financials are. I know that, um, but I would imagine it'll be, it'll be considerable. And at the end of the day, I'm sure it's the it'll be the UK taxpayers subject of the bill at some stage. I think that's always the question. So we're yeah. we're, we're still on security, but switching it to more general terms. Um, Will Kinchy yeah. says, like I did, you're not droning on, John, but talking about drones. Do the police use drones a lot more these days, and would they yes. be used on that day? Yes, they do. I don't know whether they'd be used in a in a large in a large central. London area for, from a safety point of view. If you've got lots of um, members of the public, a highly populated, uh, confined area, um, I think I think drones. What the risk that you have to take with drones is that you know you have to keep them in the air. You don't want them dropping out of the sky. And so I think at the moment the police in the UK generally rely on air support. You know, air helicopters and what have you. Um, I used, uh, at Glen Eagles in 2005, I used a tethered balloon. And I, had a, I had a large balloon <laughs> with, with uh, camera equipment, uh, which uh, had the great advantage of being quiet. Oh. So you think about people attending a conference, and uh, it, just, it, was, it was on a, a steel hawser anchored to the ground, very high up in the air, and um, it just had camera equipment on it and surveillance equipment and we were able to see for miles away. And it was quiet. And, uh, you know, we avoided reaching our own air exclusion zone with noisy helicopters. And I thought it was a pretty good solution, actually. Um, well, but in, in, in the Met, they would use helicopters in the main. Sure, the, world, the world's moved on a bit since um, balloons in 2005. But look, you know, drones have a great future. I'm watching... Uh, was it Frozen Planet 2? Yeah. With David Attenborough at the moment, which is the latest sort of um, natural history documentary series in the UK. And some of the footage is absolutely phenomenal and it's taken with drones. Mm. Right. So it's got great potential. Next question, John, um, from Carl in um, California, but there's some link questions to this. How was yeah. the airspace defended? Um, and was the well, airspace defended from? drones clearly and did we have any support from yeah. the american intelligence well there'd be there'd be there'd be military potentially there's always military aid to the civil power in a big event so there'd be some support from the military but the first thing you do is you apply for an air exclusion zone from the civil aviation authority and make sure that there's no um, and making sure there's no breach of that is uh, is important so there will have been an air exclusion zone 
not only in Scotland, but also in London and probably over Windsor as well. And um, how you actually enforce that has changed over the years. So one of the problems at Glen Eagles was that there'd been, um, there'd been sort of white powder attacks at various venues where people had dropped white powder. There was one in the Commons actually, where somebody in the public gallery had thrown white powder uh, in the House of Commons. And of course, there'd been an attack, hadn't there, in Japan, in Tokyo, using, uh, was it ricin or another chemical agent? And that was around the time we were doing uh, G8 in the mid 2000s. And so that was exercising our minds. And one of the issues we had to address was if someone took a hang glider or powered hang glider and breached the no-fly zone over Glen Eagles and dropped a bag of flour or something over the venue, how would we prevent that happening? Wow. And it was, uh, it was a very difficult uh, dilemma to address. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, we uh, would have to rely on armed officers disabling the aircraft or shooting someone down. And uh, that would, you know, that that's uh, along all the routes of the uh, of the uh, state funeral. I'm sure there would have been firearms officers, and that would have been something that, uh, you know, the commander would have had to make a difficult decision over had the you know the no fly zone been breached. Mm. But at the end of the day, you hope that you're never going to have to take those decisions, and you can put in place plans. Uh, but sometimes, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to make a, a difficult decision. <laughs> or and not, as the case may be. Yeah, the RAF, RAF would have been involved in that as well, I guess. And uh... Uh, No, we found that they weren't because they don't have the sort of kit for that sort of thing. So it's, it, in my experience, it's left to policing rather than military. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, hostile drones was a question, but I think you've answered that. Mm -hmm. And um, would specialist military communication teams be on hand to ensure that the police and military channels were not affected intentionally or unintentionally? I guess um, Nigel's thinking about uh, Russians hacking into systems and things like that. Well, I mean, I think when, when, um, uh, when heads of state are around, particularly the American president, there are vehicles there that... Uh, you know, the, a company, the, the president's um, uh, car, I think, with, uh, with sort of high-tech equipment, equipped with high-tech equipment to stop, you know, communications being disabled. Okay. Um, but the, the unsung heroes of uh, these big operations are, are very often the technical people. So they, in the police would have and deploy um, a lot of technology, a lot of closed-circuit TV, which of course is there to gather evidence of any incidents and what happens and to prevent things happening. Uh, and there would be, in central London, there's a very good network of closed circuit TV. That's changed over the years. Now CCTV is much more at sort of street level, uh, trying to look at faces. In the past, it was always very high up because originally, uh, you know, when for example, there was a lot of IRA terrorism, um, they were deploying bombs. And so the technology was high up. Now it's much more to try and detect people's faces and identity. 
and there'd be a lot of radio communications uh, kit deployed. And the other things as well, of course, that you have to build into the planning for these events is you need to look after your staff. So police officers standing on points for a long period of time, say on the route of a, um, a cortege or, a, you know, in this case, in the Queen's Coffin, uh, they need to focus and concentrate on the crowd and they need regular uh, breaks because otherwise they get bored and they lose their attention span and they need regular feeding because they get hungry and if they're hungry they'll lose the concentration as well and over a 10-day period if you're deployed you know from a force somewhere in you know, some part of the UK and you're working in London, you need to go somewhere to rest and sleep. And so there's a whole, um, there's, a, there's a whole plan, a subordinate plan, which is about welfare, you know, accommodation, feeding. Uh, you need officers to relieve other officers who have worked, say, an eight-hour shift and then need to go and rest. And uh, people, of course, don't realise that. They just see a police officer. But, of course, you know, that's not going to be the same police officer over a 10-day period. It's going to involve lots of people who are rotating between on duty, rest, sleep, eating, etc. Now, one of, the, one of the things I was most proud of at Glen Eagles was we actually, we actually paid for the Metropolitan Police catering people to come up to Scotland to provide the food. It wasn't the cheapest option, but it was the best option. And people could go and eat any time they wanted, you know, for nothing. Yeah, and yeah. the idea was to try and maintain morale, keep people focused, make sure that they, um, you know, could do their job properly. People often forget about that aspect of, you know, a big operation like this. Yeah, you've raised a couple of points there, John. Um, Jill English asked, asked, how could Derek have got closer or inside the cordon? Well, I did try hard. I used all my um, negotiation skills with these two coppers that were from uh, West Yorkshire Police. Oh, were they? Oh, my old force. Yeah. I started my professional career in West Yorkshire. Yeah, I was building rapport. I was mirroring and matching their body language. I was doing everything I could. Didn't including work. asking them where they were staying and what time they left the hotel, which was three in the morning, and it was 2.30 in the afternoon. They told me they were on a 12-hour shift. Incidentally, but where did they say they were staying? They were staying at a nice hotel at Heathrow. There were 140 right. of them. Yeah. There yeah. was no food. There was a microwave, and they had to share it, apparently. Um, they oh, weren't dear. very impressed by that. But they oh, were dear. They were quite impressed with the overtime they were getting. Um, yes, I bet they were, yeah. And, John, there's a lot of us more of my age on here. We need to go to the loo quite often. Where do they? Where on earth were they going to the loo and where were they eating? Because <laughs> there were that million, there were probably a million, they said there were two million people inside this cordon that I failed to get into. Yes. Um, where were these guys and girls eating and going to the loo it must have been well, I don't, well they must they must have had they must have had loo's available they would have had portal loo's available at a certain place surely yeah. as part yeah. of the planning must have done. i didn't you see can't having them you can't have them crossing the legs on the you know, <laughs> well i was wondering 
But um, yeah, I mean, usually, usually what happens is that um, you would look for, you know, um, hotels, for example, at Heathrow, where there are lots of hotels mm. on Bath Road, which is the, the main road that runs through the terminals at Heathrow. Or you would look at, um, we looked at uh, halls of residence at universities. So there'll be lots of universities with halls of residence in London, some of which, you know, might have accommodation. Um, then you've got military barracks, you know, where people probably could, uh, uh, or training centres, where, you know, in the period of time between the Queen passing, passing away and the, 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 the state funeral, you could maybe um, say to people who are running training, suspend the training, you know, send the people who, you, who you're training away from the residential, release the rooms, release the accommodation for police officers who would have to provide this sort of support. So you have to think fairly laterally about the type of accommodation you could obtain. I mean, in, in Glen Eagles, we had, we had some, pri uh, some private schools in the summer, you know, which had broken up earlier than the state schools and they were boarding schools. So they had accommodation that were normally used by pupils just lying empty. And some of them might do the odd summer school, you know, for people who wanted to play bridge or whatever. Um, but we filled up a lot of those, uh, a lot of that accommodation with police officers. So it's always going to be uh, a bit hit and miss and very varied as to what they get look of the draw in this case presumably you were your 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 negotiating skills had limited success they had zero success john and i was a bit hacked off about that i couldn't you get didn't it. give them one of your mature student cards did you, you didn't i should have done no, i should have done. done i should have taken a book with me yeah. as well i'm sure if you'd done that at that point you might have been in danger of arrest <laughs> They seem nice people, John. They seem nice people. Yeah, um, John. I nearly... actually, I actually was quite impressed when, when I was in Parliament Square. I mean, I, I've actually, uh, it was a, it was a heavy mix of media, uh, members of the public, and, and security, and it was a it was actually a very constructive, sort of very nice mix. And the police were doing a good job in jollying people along, and mm. you know, trying to. Um, uh, Trying to no, not a, well. It wasn't. It wasn't time for a carnival atmosphere, but it felt, you know, like a very sort of um, constructive atmosphere. I agree with you. Well, I yeah. always find once you go up to a police officer after he sussed you out for ten seconds, looked you up and down, and made sure you're not a bandit. At that point, you can then build rapport, but you have to let them do that first <laughs> I feel John maybe it's just because I'm a London boy John we've nearly come to the end of our time it's that's been absolutely okay. brilliant uh, session I was going to ask you some more questions about yeah, um, keep, keep, keep going. no no yeah. we've I need to turn the recording off now but about the UK perhaps you'll stay on about the UK border force and how come we're letting anyone yeah, sure. got a rowing boat into the UK at the moment but maybe we'll yeah. do that after the Tory party conference has finished in that horrible place, Birmingham, according to one of the, uh, I thought it was a nice place, Birmingham, one of the Tories who said something wrong on Sky News. Um, John, one last tip for 2023 for people watching this from your ex own experience. I haven't warned you about this, but just something to, um, to, uh, for people to take away um, and, uh, 
look after themselves or get involved in or whatever? What would that tip be? Well, um, my uh, wife bought me for Christmas um, a, a book from uh, Matthew Said called Rebel Ideas. And um, it's a very good read and um, I, I would recommend it. And I, in it, he says, you know, challenge yourself, challenge your views by meeting people who are diametrically different views from yours and, uh, and expose yourself to new experiences and new ideas. And I think that's, I mean, in, in a changing world, I think that's the best way we can actually, you know, develop ourselves and prepare ourselves for the future, really. We have to be comfortable with change and we have to stop associating with people who just have the same ideas as ourselves and just reinforce our own ideas and prejudices. John, that's fantastic. You reminded me you become who you spend the most time with. So people that challenge you in a sensible way. Um, I noticed that your wife is on this call, John, so I guess you had to say it was a good book anyway, but uh, I, I believe you. Uh, <laughs> oh, she's read it as well, actually. She thought it was a good book. John Vine, CBE. Uh, we've seen the pictures. If you Google John, you can see him meeting the Queen at uh, Buckingham Palace. John, thanks for joining us. I hope you'll join us again. And if you'd stay on for the questions that people didn't want to ask on the recording, that would be brilliant. Yeah. If you're watching this on YouTube or listening to this on the Negotiators podcast, do join us on Monday live when you can see fascinating people like John Vine. I'd like everybody to thank John in the usual Monday night live way. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.